Greetings to all of you. I've been looking forward to being with you uh, for a few days at least. And um, I bring you greetings from Christ Proclamation Church. Um, and uh, we were very blessed to have Scott come and, and share uh, with us a couple weeks ago and give him his inaugural uh, preaching under a tent uh, experience. We have a big tent we set up in the summertime. And so it was really fun uh, to be able to, uh, to do that. A little too cold for that now. So um, I'm uh, just so you know a little bit more about me. I've been a Christian for about 40 years now and, and been married for 35 of those. And um, my wife and I, uh, Leslie, we have uh, three children, two are adults, one still at home. We became grandparents for the first time uh, this, about a year ago. So we're very happy about uh, that. Um, I had a long uh, career in human resources uh, with a couple uh, big companies, but uh, retired in 2019, so now I have a lot more time to study the scriptures and uh, do other things. So um, this morning, uh, as we kind of get into our text, um, I'm wondering if you've ever heard or actually maybe saw the bite fight. Is that Sound familiar? It was between Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. It took place in 1997, right, for the heavyweight championship. And Newsweek said this about it. They said, even by boxing's absurd standards, this incident was so astonishing that it remains hard to comprehend 24 years later. It was a bizarre fight. Here's what happened. With 40 seconds left in the third round, uh, Mike Tyson gets Holyfield in a clinch and then proceeds to bite off a chunk of his ear and then unbelievably spits it out onto the canvas. I mean, what was he thinking, right? I mean, there was a referee right there. Um, they were at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, and, and this thing was being broadcast around the world. This is an example of uncontrolled rage, is it not? A man who's out of control. Tyson was being dominated in the fight by Holyfield. He was frustrated, so he lashed out in anger. And he was impulsive and reckless. Afterward, Tyson said this. He said, I was furious. I was an undisciplined soldier, and I lost my composure. So I bit him in the ear. I wanted to kill him. That's what he said. So, Extreme example of uncontrolled rage. But don't we experience rage, too, just in smaller, less public ways? Like when someone cuts you off in, in the road, right? Or when the internet stops working. Ah! <laughs> but now shift gears. Let's think about the wrath of God. If you imagine it, like the rage of that boxer, you're so wrong. God doesn't spew out anger randomly, out of control. He's in complete control of his wrath. He has full command of it. He can restrain it, and he can release it perfectly. And don't get me wrong. It's real wrath. That's why the Scripture describes it as passionate, Rapid breathing, nostril flaring, wrath. 
It's real. He's storing it up for the future, and he'll bring it forth at his pleasure. Now, with an angry person who's out of control, you can typically wait for them to calm down, find some way to compromise. But when the offense is a matter of principle, it's much more serious. Mere compromise, that won't satisfy. The principle that was violated must be set right. That's why we should fear offending God above all because we violated his righteousness and we rightly deserve his wrath. So the principle here is righteousness, and more specifically, God's righteousness. There's a legal sense to it. So God's law demands that we live blamelessly before him. And because of who he is, God must judge us according to his perfect moral standard. That's his his perfect moral law. So then if we violate his righteousness... His wrath towards us is totally justified, but we're also going to see how this righteousness is an expression of grace. So grab your sermon outline, turn to the Bible, in your Bible, the book of Romans. We're going to take a look at at Romans 3, 21 through 26, and we're we're going to consider how Jesus came to die in our place to satisfy God's wrath. But as you're turning, stop briefly in Romans chapter 1, because I want you to see the context for what we're about to read in chapter 3 concerning God's wrath. So the Apostle Paul has just finished saying that the, right, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says this. This is for context. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So with that in context in mind, now let's, let's read our main text, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're going to look at three aspects of God's wrath this morning. First, the reason for God's wrath, and then the remedy for God's wrath, and then finally the reality of God's wrath. So let's start with the reason. That's the first point in your outline. So we'll start by considering it from the perspective of God's righteousness, then from our own human sinfulness. So let me ask you, did you notice how many times those passages referred to the righteousness of God? Four times in six verses. Must be important, right? 
It is. So what's at stake? God's justice is at stake. God must be right. He must be right in the way he administers justice. Not simply right some of the time, but in every way, all the time. He must be right in all things. Now, that's not that he's subject to any law himself. That's his nature. It's his nature. This is who God is, altogether holy. And you know that from Psalm 77. Verse 13 of Psalm 77 declares, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our great God? So when his holy standard is violated, it offends him. It's high treason. He's the king. He's not an ordinary judge who administers someone else's legal system. Instead, he gives laws that are a reflection of his own character. So he can't merely overlook offenses. That wouldn't be right for him to do. It wouldn't be righteous judgment. And if God is going to put, if he's going to put anyone who's offended him into a right relationship with him, he has to deal, and he must deal with those offenses. Now, how can we better understand the righteousness of God? Well, for starters, by reading our Old Testament, right? The end of verse 21, it tells us that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. How so? Well, God gave his law to the people through Moses so they could be who? His people. In Exodus 19.5, he said to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That's probably familiar to you. You see, the people who belong to God must be holy because God is holy. But Scripture tells us time and time again how God's people failed to keep the law. That's a problem, right? Because God must uphold his righteous requirement for his people. So if anything's going to be done about it, God must do it himself. Like in Ezekiel 36, 22, where God says, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. If God's people fail, then he must be the one to act. But in acting, he must act justly. There's no other way. So let me try and illustrate this for you. When I was in high school, I had a math teacher gave difficult exams. I mean, nobody ever got 100% right, so he graded on a curve. And after he scored the exam, he'd hand them all back to us, and then he'd go up to the board and he'd write all the scores of the tests for each student in descending order on the board, from highest to the lowest, right? And then he'd step back and he'd go, hmm, I wonder who's going to get an A on this exam. And he'd take the chalk. Yeah, we had chalk in those days. And he'd draw a line somewhere, right? And you'd hear some people cheer and other people groan, right? And he'd do that all the way down until he'd marked out all the grades that everybody was going to get. No names, right? But you knew your score um, all the way down to the people who'd, who'd failed. Now, that worked for my math teacher, right? But could God... 
grade us on a curve like that? No, he can't. Why? Why? Because his own righteousness won't permit it. You see, all those math tests, they had what on them? Errors. They had errors. Even the people who got A's, they made mistakes, right? But God's standard is what? Perfection. Perfect righteousness. Perfect holiness. Grading on a curve won't do. Perfection's the requirement. Anything per- short of perfection is failure. Which brings us to the dilemma. That's point B, the sinfulness of humanity. Now let's be clear here. Because we live in a world of distinctions, don't we? There are distinctions between students, which ones get the best grades in school. There's distinctions between, uh, at at work, right? Your pay and your level of responsibility. Um, There's distinctions when you fly. Who gets to fly in first class? So there's all sorts of distinctions. And there were distinctions in Paul's day too, right? None of them was, was bigger than the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Okay, so because we live in a world of distinctions, we think they matter, don't we? That's our natural inclination. In particular, we think they matter with regard to God's righteousness. But at the end of verse 22, it answers that question for us in a most definitive way. Do you see it? It says, there is no distinction. We're in serious error if we think we deserve anything from God, that we've somehow distinguished ourselves from the rest of humanity. The only thing we deserve is punishment for our sinfulness. All people deserve this punishment from God without distinction. And that means God's wrath is stored up for us. Remember the context of Romans 1.18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But Paul reiterates that point earlier in chapter 3. Just look at verse 9 of chapter 3. He begins his argument this way. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. But Paul summarizes that thought right here in verse 23 of our chapter that we're studying. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all the distinctions we make, we lack what's most important. We lack the righteousness of God. We can't achieve any glory in his sight. Now, what shall we conclude from this? Well, here it is. If we all, if there are no distinctions, right, then we all fall short. And no one can save themselves. No one. Your efforts to justify yourself before God are completely futile. In fact, they're they're offensive to God. You're just storing up more and more of God's wrath for yourself. You have no standing before God on your own merits. You lack the righteousness that God requires. And I do too. So, quick illustration. Did you know that 
with a, a drowning victim, when they're, when they're panicking, they can become almost impossible to save. They'll even grab the person who's trying to rescue them and take them down with them. Why? It's not that they want to hurt their rescuer. They're just desperate uh, to, to, to breathe, to stay afloat. And, and a person who is in that state can be super strong because they're in panic. So the easiest drowning victim to save is the one that's given up trying to save themselves. And if a lifeguard doesn't have a flotation device, they have to wait till the victim exhausted themselves before they can come in and, and help them and bring them to safety. Yet, that's only an illustration. The problem of our sin is much greater than drowning. Much greater. The Bible's clear that we're dead in our trespasses. You see that in Ephesians. It makes it clear here. We violated God's law. We deserve his wrath. We can't save ourselves. Is there a remedy for this desperate situation? Yes. But our own sin prohibits us from contributing anything to it. We don't have the solution on ourselves. God must solve the problem by his own action. And praise God, he's done just that. So please look at your second point in the, in the outline, which is the remedy for God's wrath. Now we'll consider four things that are covered in our text. Faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ be received as a gift through Christ's redeeming work, C, God himself provided the sacrifice, and then D, God is both just and justifier. And notice this, verse 22. It's still talking about the righteousness of God, but it carries important context from the previous verse, verse 21. Verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean? It means we're living in a new time in salvation history. Right? Bigger than Reformation Day. Right? A new time in salvation history. The system of law-keeping was a witness to God's righteousness in the past, but now God has made his righteousness evident apart from the law. So how's God done that? How has he made it evident apart from the law? He sent his son to fulfill the law. He did it through the gospel. It was accomplished by Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. He made the righteousness of God visible for us in a new way. What he accomplished was a way for sinful people to be made right, to be made just, justified with God. Look at verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God, and how does that come? How does that come? Through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. Here's the way that any person can be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ must become the object of his faith. God's determined that salvation comes solely on the basis of faith. That means you don't look to yourself for the basis of your salvation. You look to Christ. Right? It means you don't trust yourself for your salvation. You trust the work of Christ. F- finished work. It means your hope rests completely, completely on what Christ has done for you. And who's this salvation for? Who's it for? It's for all who believe. There are no distinctions in, in the sinfulness of people. Now, we, we, we all saw that, right? We understood that. No distinctions. We've all sinned. That's clear. And that also means that we deserve God's wrath without distinctions. But there's also no distinctions for the people who become justified with God. No distinctions. All who believe are relying fully on Jesus Christ for their righteousness. No exceptions. Now let's think about that for a moment. How can people become justified before God without distinctions? It means righteousness can't be earned in any way. It can't be deserved according to our works in any way. The way you become justified before God can't be any different from the person sitting next to you. And it can't be any different from the person in the next town or halfway across the country or all the way around the world. It can't come to you because of your culture. It can't come to you because of your gender. It can't come to you because of your family heritage. It must be a gift. That's how there's no distinctions. And that's what verse 24 tells us. Verse 24. All who are saved from God's wrath are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. But how does that gracious gift of Christ's righteousness come to us. Verse 24 again. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? So the work is Christ's work, not ours. But what is the nature of his work? It's a redeeming work. What does that mean? Well, generally speaking, it means that we're released. Released. Christ's work releases us. From what? From the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath. That's his perfect judgment. We're released from having to pay that penalty. We couldn't pay it. No one could pay that price. Christ had to pay it for us, and that's what he did. His redeeming redeeming work, his free gift for all who believe. So you know when somebody gives you something, what do you want to do? You want to reciprocate, don't you? That's our nature. That's our desire. And that's probably because you see yourself as prosperous, not needy. 
even if you admit to needing a few things, you probably don't see yourself as destitute. But when it comes to our spiritual condition, the Bible tells us we're living in extreme poverty. We're spiritually destitute. In fact, we have nothing. Nothing. Now, is that how you see yourself spiritually? Or do you cling to the delusion that you still bring something to the table? Right? But what is the situation in Matthew 5, 6 that, that describes there? Jesus says, Blessed are those, you know this one, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hear what he's saying? To receive God's righteousness, you must see that you're living in complete spiritual poverty, hungry and thirsty for what you need and don't have. Only Jesus can satisfy what you need. May God open your eyes and the eyes of those around you to see it and receive it from God's hand as a free gift. And I plead with you, if you haven't done so already, place your full trust in Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. And there's more to this redemption. There's more. It's also a liberation. This is important. Liberation from bondage to the power of sin. Because we're not just guilty of sin, we're enslaved to it. Aren't we? We can't break free without the work of Christ. The idea of redemption brings up imagery of how God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. And it follows that this liberation was a gift of God's grace. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. It's very clear. It was not because of you, God is speaking, not because of you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Right? This is, I'm sorry, this is, this is Moses speaking, but he's speaking about the Lord. Because it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Not because you were more in number, you were the fewest, right? The Lord, and that for that reason, because the Lord is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers and he loves you, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's grace. Right? God did it because he chose to set his love on them and he chose to fulfill his promise to them. That's grace. So if we're incapable of saving ourselves from God's wrath, if salvation is a free gift from God, and then he must satisfy his own wrath on our behalf, we have nothing to offer God, so God must do it all. That's what we see in the beginning of verse 25, don't we? Whom and it's referring to Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his, Jesus' blood, to be received by faith. When it says that God put him forward, it means that God presented him as the remedy for sin publicly for all to see. Public display. God the Father set forth his purpose in Christ so it would be visible to the world. What was God's solution? Christ as our substitute. Christ as our substitute. 
He took the wrath that we deserved. He stood in our place. Do you want to see what you deserved? Look at Christ. Look what happened to him. Paul would have his picture the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, when we hear the solution, describes the holy place in the tabernacle once a year. High priest would go in there, offer God's prescribed sacrifice to take care of the sins of the people of Israel. It involved offering blood on a sacrifice, as a sacrifice on something called the mercy seat, if you're familiar with it, where bulls, goats, the rest were sacrificed. This was on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant between two cherubs in the most holy place. It was the place of ultimate sacrifice for Israel. So then, to complete the idea, God has presented Jesus to us and to all the world throughout history as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement for sin. No other sacrifice is needed. He's done it all on the cross. And God put this forward to us as the remedy for our sin. That's the remedy. The death of Jesus Christ is completely sufficient to satisfy God's wrath it will, if we will only place our faith and trust in that righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, do you feel the tension in this solution? Do you? Here it is. Can God simultaneously be loving towards us and wrathful against us? Is there some tension in that? Well, here it is. He's the judge in the courtroom, right? <laughs> but he also stands in our place as the condemned criminal. How does that work? It may seem strange, a strange scene to our eyes, but we shouldn't think of Christ as the kind son protecting us from the wrathful father. Don't think of it that way. The remedy for God's wrath, this is the solution given us to us by the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's complete harmony between the three of them. So God as judge condemns us as sinners, deserving the death penalty, and then he steps down to take our place. Before the cross, people couldn't see the righteousness of God as clearly as we can see it now. Look at the end of verse 25. Speaking of the time before Christ's death, it says, because in his divine forbearance... He had passed over former sins. God's forbearance made it appear that God was indifferent to sin. It's the way it looked, right? But and there were episodes in the Old Testament where judgment, you know, there was judgment, but nothing like what sin really deserved. God overlooked sin for a time. He did. Why couldn't he do that indefinitely? Why couldn't God just overlook sin for all eternity? 
right? Why couldn't that be the solution? Well, let me ask you this. Would that show you, would that reveal to you the righteousness of God? Would it? Would it make us picture him like a senile old man because he doesn't notice, right? Wouldn't it make him seem like a distant deity because he doesn't give a rip about morality? Wouldn't it make him appear corrupt because he looks the other way? But God's our judge. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. Sure, he's delayed his judgment, not forever. He's delayed in anticipation of his solution to the sin problem, his coming Messiah. So the sacrifice of Christ has changed absolutely all of history. All of history. The cross of Christ made God's inherent justice clear and visible. Now we can see that God is righteous in judgment. We can see it. As it says in verse 26, it was to show, look at verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. And now comes the pinnacle of God's glory, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the present time, God's wrath and God's love for all those who have faith in Jesus have both become perfectly visible to us at the same time and in the same way. They come together at the greatest and most momentous time in human history, the death of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross shows us how God is just and justifier. Right? Both at the same time. He poured out his full wrath. Full wrath on Jesus. Full wrath. As our substitute to fully satisfy his justice. And the ones who have faith in Christ, in Jesus, are justified by his righteous standing before God. So, see, there's no tension. There's no conflict in that. Not really. God's able to maintain his just character towards sin and justify his people so they're brought to glory. He can do that. So is this just a big theological discussion? Right? Or do we need to be concerned about it in the here and the now? How does it impact us? I want to convince you God's wrath is very real. It's real. That's the final point in your outline. God's wrath doesn't just go away if we ignore it. It must be satisfied one way or the other. must be. This is really how you will spend eternity. Will the wrath that you deserve be poured out on Jesus Christ as your substitute? Or will it be poured out on you because you're without faith? In Jesus Christ. It's a difficult reality, but it's an urgent one. So let's consider three applications. This is our final point. How should we relate to God's wrath as we practically live our lives? Let's look at it three contexts God's wisdom and his patience 
And then finally is righteousness. First, consider the wisdom of God. You might be thinking that it's hard to trust a God like this. I mean, he has so much power. We'd be suspicious of any earthly judge that had this much power, wouldn't we? I mean, God can just justify who he pleases and he can judge who he pleases. I mean, that's absolute power, right? Maybe you want to run from him. Maybe he makes you nervous. Maybe you don't understand him. Maybe you're skeptical of his motivations. Maybe you're ashamed to even approach him. I get it. Some of those feelings are appropriate. But we also feel like this because we don't know him. Not really. Not as well as we can. We need to understand what he's revealed to us about himself. So God gives us passages like this one so we can be, see both his kindness and his severity. And Paul later talks about that in Romans 11. But we're not talking, and now we're not dealing with a God whose personality lashes out randomly in anger like that boxer. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a wise God, a wise God who we can trust with our eternal future. Wasn't it his plan to become just and justifier, wise? I mean, that was so wise. And wasn't it gracious and merciful? It was unbelievably gracious and merciful. And what should we conclude about God? Well, as God says, as, as Romans 11.33 says about him, Oh, the depth, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Do you see? His judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable, right? He does all things well. Do you rejoice like that in the wisdom of God? Instead, don't you nervously say things like, I'm trusting God, but I hope he knows what he's doing. Or don't you arrogantly say, I know what God should do for me if he'd only cooperate. And even if you don't say those things, don't you actually think them? You need to truly know the wisdom of God and then act on that knowledge. Just consider what the scriptures say he's done for you. And if the God of the universe has such kind intentions towards you, can't you trust him with every area of your life? And I mean every area of your life. Your relationships, your money, your family, your work, your time, your thoughts. And how about the deepest and most complex and intimate places in your heart that only you and God know about.
He's so wise and he's so worthy of our trust. And you can trust him. But second, don't misinterpret the patience of God. Don't misinterpret this. God is our judge, but he has not yet judged us for our sins. He has not yet poured out his wrath in full measure. So how do you read God's delayed judgment? Do you think he's powerless? Do you think he's lazy? Do you think he's careless? He's none of these things, is he? Heed the warning of Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I plead with you this morning, repent and believe on Jesus Christ as your substitute. Only his sacrifice can satisfy the wrath of God and give you eternal life. Now, if God merely overlooked your sin, then his wrath wouldn't be turned away, would it? And your judgment must eventually come, if he just overlooked it. Avoiding punishment is not the same as dealing with the guilt of sin, your sin. Just avoiding punishment is not the same thing. You don't want the prospect of God's judgment hanging over you. What God's offering to you is far superior. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Scripture tells us that. And finally, think again how often the righteousness of God was stressed in our passage this morning. Verse 25, it showed us that God's righteousness was vindicated. How did he vindicate himself? He put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ demonstrated to all the world how our wise and patient God is able to bring together the attributes of wrath, justice, mercy, and love all together in perfect harmony and all together in perfect righteousness. That's our God. And in case the full weight of that hasn't landed on you yet, notice that it was to show God's righteousness. That's why he did it, to show his righteousness. Doesn't that expose how self-centered we can be? Right? God himself is the center we like to think it's about us going to heaven, right? And it is. But what's central? See, we like it best when we're told how much God loves us, right? We, that's what we like to hear, right? And that's, that's, not, that's part of it, but that's not the main thing. God's the central figure. The vindication of his righteousness is the main idea. It's all about God's character, his holiness, God's glory and God's righteousness for all eternity. And that has implications for the way we live our lives in the here and the now. For instance, what would it look like if you lived less for your own glory and more for the glory of God? What would that look like? What if you thought less of yourself and more of God? 
Doesn't that mean you start putting his will above your own will? Wouldn't it mean you start taking steps to, for the sake of righteousness, like putting sin to death in your life? And not because you can impress God, but because you belong to God. See, you were redeemed by Christ for a purpose. You don't have to fear the wrath of God any longer if you're in Christ. But that doesn't mean you can live as you please. And I can't either. Rather, because it's all about God, your life is now consumed with doing good works. All for the glory of God. And His name. So as we conclude, think back once again to that wild uncontrollable rage that boxer I spoke about, right? God's not anything like that. He's in complete control of everything. That includes his wrath, which he'll pour out righteously in judgment, and it includes salvation, which he freely gives to any who believe in Jesus. And that frees us to worship him in righteousness, doesn't it? So let me leave you with this thought. It's great to sing about the love of God, isn't it? But, and, and easy to say God is love, but we don't often say God is wrath, do we? <laughs> Even though that is one of his attributes, yet we still sing about it. And what makes it great to sing about? Why do we do that? It's when God's wrath is satisfied. And so we sing in Christ alone. We sing it with these words, don't we? Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And you live, too if you're in Christ. So, God has kind intentions. Let's submit to them, right? Let's worship him together with one another, Jew and Gentile, right? Um, people of different backgrounds coming together to worship him in righteousness and rejoice in our great God by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, I'm so grateful uh, for your grace and so grateful for scriptures like this that describe it so well. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into it. Lord, thank you so much for your great compassion towards us. And Lord, would you just instill in us a proper gratitude for that? And would you instill in us a proper compassion for others because of what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.